Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Nailers Natter. This week I'm in conversation talking dual coding with the wonderful Oliver Caviglioli. In the week of the release of Dual Coding with Teachers, we're going to discuss the work of Pavio and Clark, Sweller and Mayer. And we're going to talk about cognitive science, graphic principles and how to ensure research can cater for both the busy teacher and the research-hungry colleagues amongst you. We also discuss how Oliver has worked with 35 teachers, teacher developers, psychologists and information designers to share their dual coding practice. And we also look at his collaborations with the learning scientists, Tom Sherrington and Stephen Tierney. So it's a great listen. Settle in for some dual coding now with the brilliant Ollie Cav. Okay, hello Oliver and welcome to the podcast. Thank you and nice to be here. Brilliant. So, um... Just explain to us exactly where you are at the moment, because uh, there might be a little bit of an issue with the reception. You, you, you're down on the south coast, are you, at the moment? I'm down in Dorset, deepest Dorset. I'm, I'm presenting at the Bryanston Summit Education Summit tomorrow, um, and signal comes and goes, so we'll see how it, how, it, how it fares today. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you for being there. Really appreciate your time, and especially in this really busy week for you with the new book that's come out, so Dual Coding for Teachers is out this week, and going really well as well. Yeah, I'm delighted by the response. Um, it was always difficult to know, well, I suppose like with anything, the balance between enough research to satisfy those people who really want to dig into the detail of the research and other teachers who want practical tips. There's always balance between the two. So, really? so far, it seems that I've, I've done it pretty well. Well, certainly, if, if Twitter's any barometer of, of, of judgment, then absolutely it has. And I'm seeing, you know, my timeline is full of people who are excited to have the book in their hands. And, and I'm disappointed that Amazon have just got their act together and it will, be, <laughs> it will be arriving on Thursday. So, yeah, really much looking forward to that. And I know a lot of people in the research school in Blackpool and in, in the school wider are looking forward to their copies as well. So let's, let's get on to uh, the question. So the, the first question is kind of a set question. It's just... For listeners, all know about you and your work, but if you can just tell us a little bit about uh, your journey to this point and, and your career up to now. All oh, right, okay. Um, I'm an old guy. I started teaching in 1976. Started in secondary schools, and within a couple of years, I was in a special school. Um, and then I, in 1986, I think I was more or less one of the last teachers to get, and this will seem incredible, one year seconded, that's to say paid study at Cambridge University. So that's what really fired me up. You know, I spent a year in a library and I'd, I just didn't want to leave. So that I really started reading then. And then um, and then I started, I became a head teacher of a special school for a decade. I wrote a couple of books um, for teachers on visual strategies and then got invited to lead presentations. And for a while I was a, a 50% head teacher, 50% working on my own, which worked well. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm, I, I just do this full, full time. What was interesting is that while I was in the special education, we were really informed by evidence a lot of the time, and we worked very closely with ed- educational psychologists. 
So I'm really used to the idea of marrying practice and, and research. And before I started teaching, my father was an architect. And so I was brought up, I had like an informal, continuous uh, design education. And so now, I kind of, I've, even in special schools, I mix them together because there's such an emphasis on visual communication that in a sense, I'm just applying this now to teachers who are really busy. And my main, I, I see my main task, I call myself, it sounds rather pompous, an information designer. I, 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 the research as it's written in an academic sense is so dense, it's off-putting, Nothing about it is is designed for a busy teacher who wants to know why, but also wants to know how. Mm, absolutely, and you know that that I said to you in in the kind of the discussion we were having before we, we we came onto the podcast, if you like, that that was the focus of of this podcast was just to give teachers that way in. To, to, to research that was quite applicable to them in their own classroom in a short shop. And if they were interested, then they could obviously go and look a little bit further. So um, this is going to be an interesting one, Oliver, because we're going to try and do dual coding through a single coded medium, which, yeah. which could yeah, be quite I've interesting. Been, I've, I've been there before. But the difficulty <laughs> actually highlights, highlights the merit of dual coding. Mm. But let's have a challenge. Go far away. Well, it doesn't. It reminds me of uh, Research at Blackpool where, on the activity where we were asked to, to face one way uh, and have a story while the other side were asked to face the other way and they could see the visuals as well. So it's almost like I'm still facing the wall in, 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 <laughs> in, in Research at Blackpool, but we'll do our best. So yeah. just to go back to the set questions, the, the big focus of the podcast, as we've said there, is to discuss one piece of research that's most influenced you. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about dual coding, but uh, if you could just tell us what that one piece of, well, the pieces of research that kind of influenced you in your work and this book. Larkin and Simon in 1987 did a wonderful piece of research and then wrote a paper. It's a long title, something like... You know that phrase, um, an image, a picture's worth a thousand words. Mm. They said image is sometimes worth a thousand words if, and then the rest of the article is around this complex jargony phrase, but it's simple. It's called computational efficiency. And what that means is that the second of the exercises we did together at Research at Blackpool was I showed the participants a piece of text. It wasn't long basically one paragraph and I asked them three questions about it and no one could answer mm. it wasn't long words the sentences were complex but working out what was what was really difficult then I showed a diagram which had all the concepts and relationships explicit and it was obvious what the answers were mm. that's what the psychologists say computationally efficient is and so I saw that there are there are, there's potential impact for teachers not always, I'm not advocating using diagrams all the time. On occasions when there's a complex idea, start off by making it into a diagram. So the key parts are really prominent, and if they're related, they're often very close together, and they're linked with, with, with lines and arrows. Then you can talk about it, and then the students can look at those relationships, and understanding what they call computation is so much easier. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So, in terms of the, the, another paper that you know talks in detail about dual coding, so we got the the, the Paleo paper from nineteen ninety one. How much of an influence did that have in terms of you writing this book? Well, ironic actually, because he he talks about dual coding, but he, he uses the most 
abstract convoluted sentences it's really hard to understand mm-hmm. um but what i got was really interesting is that there are two aspects of dual coding not just visual and verbal when people talk about dual coding they're talking about one aspect of it which is like tethering grouping pairing one word with one image so that means when it goes into your mind the learning or the encoding part is richer which means you double the chance. Paul Kirshner, the professor Paul Kirshner, talks about double memory trace. So he calls it double-barreled learning. If you put two things together when it goes inside your mind, then you've got two possible sources to help you remember it. But the Pivio bit, he also pointed out that the structure of words is their sequential, whereas the structure of images are non-linear which means you can see things in one go. And, and that was the reason why I did that exercise when I asked those questions about that piece of text and showed how easy it is to understand when things aren't always expressed in, in straight lines because the relationships aren't linear. No, absolutely. And in terms of, you know, the application for these principles in the classroom, I mean, one thing I was struck by, and this is something that, again, you know, I've been guilty of, is that when you're speaking, you know, you you have to realise that the students might not understand all of those words. And to understand the concepts, they have to see those words building together. I'm sure you put it much more eloquently than that. But these words disappear. And you talked a little bit about this transient uh, information effect and words disappearing. Could you just elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that and how the visuals help there? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm for more teacher explanation. You know, I'm, I'm totally against all that stuff. I'm speaking for two minutes. So the most powerful thing in a classroom is a teacher explaining. At the same time, when Sweller and his colleagues looked at cognitive load and overload, really, um, they found that the transient information, like it sounds grand, means something that everybody knows, that when you speak, those words disappear. They're not concrete. They're not stable. And then the next word comes along. So when you receive lots of words, which students do, and particularly if they're not quite all familiar to them, soon they get overloaded. They have to keep remembering what was said before at the same time that they're trying to process the words that are currently being spoken. And that's where one of the benefits of dual coding is to capture some of that visually. And when I say visually, it may sometimes just be some words up on the board. And then the teacher might, the important bit, both if you write words on the board or if you do a diagram, is to signal. So, for example, if you were explaining to me and we were together and you had a diagram and you talked about the diagram, I may not know which part of the diagram you're looking at. So while you're saying these important words, I'm trying to find out which bits you're relating to. And then when I find it, you move on to the next part. So it's very important to signal by physically pointing which bit of the diagram you're talking about. Or if you're using PowerPoint, it's really useful to not show the whole diagram, which can put some people off. Show part of the diagram first. So they can't be confused by looking somewhere else. They know you're talking about that part. Then when you've explained it, perhaps done some exercises and checked that they've understood, then you add the next part. And in that way, not only are you not overloading them, you're teaching them how to read the diagram. Because I think some students, what I read in, in the research is that, and this isn't learning styles, 
some of the reasons why dual coding works less effectively is there are some students who have lower visuospatial skills. Now, that isn't set, but it can improve. And one of the things to improve are doing the things I just say, not overwhelming the diagram, one part of the time, signal, and actually explain with words what's happening in your mind as you read a diagram. So it may be, I look at the central part to see what it's about, and I look to see what the main branches are. I read those first. That's a bit like reading the chapter headings, so I get a general idea. And what I do then is, let's look at this branch here, and then you, and then you, and then you go on. And that helps the, the students follow you, and for some of them, for the first time, they really get what a diagram does because you're explaining how you how you read it. No, absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned there about uh, the dreaded learning styles. But you know, what was there some research? And I might have got this wrong, Oliver. So correct me if I'm wrong. Was some research? Yeah. Was it Mayo in terms of every person works tends to work better with some kind of visuals? It was Richard. Richard Mayer says indeed every human works better with visuals. That's a general conclusion from about four decades of research, both his and, and others. But there are exceptions. So there are four reasons. There are two people, teacher and student, who between them have two aspects, can make it less effective. One, as we've just said, when the student has got no special skills and hasn't been taught how to read a diagram. The second one is when a student has got low or no prior knowledge about the subject. So you might have a brilliant diagram about some aspects of physics. It's just absolutely brilliant. And you show it to me, and because I know next to nothing about physics, as brilliant as it is, it just doesn't make any sense. So they're the two reasons. Now, the two reasons that relate to teachers, one is they use the wrong sort of visual for the task. So for example, say you wanted to explain a scientific process so it's one step and another step and another step, it would be really ineffective to use a mind map or a tree diagram because that's looking at things, not verbs or processes. So we'd use some kind of a flowchart. Mm -hmm. So using the wrong diagram doesn't help. And lastly, even if you've chosen the right diagram, it's perfectly tuned. If it's poorly executed, then that will have diminishing effect and and there are two there are lots of things that teachers can do to improve their their dual coding creation but here's just two very quickly one cut the amount of content you've got on your page or on your slide that will have the simplest thing to do and it has the biggest impact so cut the content the other one and i've been doing this with teachers in training sessions i think they find it a bit of a shock to start with is improve your handwriting yeah. Don't write. Don't write like a doctor. Yeah. Don't use your normal writing script. Print. Print. Mm. And if your printing isn't very clear, print capitals. Mm. All that work is wasted if you're using your normal handwriting style. Too hard to read. And I've noticed recently on Twitter that some of the courses that you've been doing, some of the training sessions that you've been doing, you have actually been working through this process of creating visuals with with some of the teachers there. What, what's been the reaction from teachers to that? They've really enjoyed it. I mean, I, yeah. I, was, in, I was in Leicester at a school, and the, the, the deputy and 
his colleague, sent me some of their slides and documents in order that I can publicly critique it to all the staff. So that's a great attitude anyway, you know, I'm learning, I love a bit of feedback. And I went through four principles that I've gradually come up with. There are many, many design principles, you know, I've read them all in the books, and I still think they're too vague for and too designy for teachers. So based on what teachers give me and ask me to give them feedback, so what I'm talking about now is that whole class feedback, in essence. This is what I find is most relevant. The first one is just cut the amount of content you've got on there. Second, chunk it up. So instead of having a page of text, put it into boxes, paragraphs, paragraph headings, topic sentences, break it up so it's just more easily digestible. Hmm. Thirdly, Align it so when you're doing a PowerPoint slide, don't try and be artistic by making or a display by making it higgledy piggledy asymmetric. Think more railway timetable or look at the back of a good newspaper design like The Guardian, look at the sports page, and it's so much information, but it's very readable. Mm. Nothing jumbles about it, it's clear, it's calm, you know, with a hierarchy of typography, the big letters, the small letters. Think clear, make things align. So there's nice, neat lines. And lastly, restrain. So I see so many people using tables in Word where every cell is coloured. I'll have that green, put black writing on there. I'll have that mauve and that orange and brown. And you don't need any of those colours. The best colours are black on white. Mm. I know there's something with dyslexia with a funny overlay of, you know, slightly yellow, but really light plain background with black with black text and if you need some color coding and most color coding that i see is unnecessary it doesn't mean anything it's just decoration if you need a bit of color coding then by the title just put a red box and by the next title put a pink box and actually ironically that smaller box will stand out more because it's the same principle that you used earlier on if you try and make everything stand out Nothing stands out. Mm. And lastly, with the restraint, one typeface, one font, not two, not three, not fancy ones you get off the internet, you know, jazzy ones with bullets in, ones that are furry, just a straight one typeface. So, so really, you improve your work tremendously by doing less, by doing less. Fewer colours, smaller content, less higgledy-piggledy, fewer fonts and it will improve tremendously mm, absolutely plain is good plain is good <laughs> plain, absolutely yeah uh, Oliver can I ask you about some of the work so we were just talking before we came on about this idea that a lot of the cognitive science um, theories that have come through now are obviously yeah. understood by by that community and are becoming more understood by teachers but we, we do have the danger sometimes of you know this as you said Dylan Williams said this this danger of lethal mutations. So I'm just thinking about your work that you did with the learning scientists in terms of the diagrams you did for retrieval practice, interleaving space and etc. and how valuable that was in terms of distilling down the key points but using dual code and actually in those explanations to make it very, very clear. So for example, retrieval practice, what it is and what it isn't, rather than yes. having to wade through all of that. So how important has, has that kind of work been as well? Well, the whole process was really great with the learning science because I had to, I mean, one great example was there was a, there was a research paper that Megan Sumeraki was describing and I wanted to illustrate. And it shows you how the real problem there is with research, not just because it's 
difficult to read and boring to read and expensive to read, mm. you know, $5 for five pages, is the fact that it's really hard to find out what they actually did. So what happened was I sketched up what I thought the research was. So there was student A on one desk and student B by the side doing another. So I had to name the task. I had to put, I drew with a clock how many minutes they were on the task. And then I drew them again lower down and I put down with an arrow when the next sequence was. Was it an hour later? Was it two days later? And I did that till I, till I did what I thought the whole research was about. The actual activity. That allowed no, they didn't do that. They did this. They did this or did this. And actually, with the wording, no, I, I, I couldn't have seen. But my visual allowed her to immediately grasp what I understood. Mm. And then by talking about it, I then drew an accurate depiction, which means that, and this is really my main task, is how do you depict visually, without dumbing down, without dumbing down, depict accurately and concisely the nub of it. So teachers who are really busy can look at it. One person will be attracted to it. You see a, 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 a visual is attractive in a sense that you know you don't understand it. Mm. And, and I think it's not going to be difficult, you're not going to be bored, and, and you'll understand it quickly. Mm. And that's been so valuable in terms of preventing some of these lethal mutations because there's almost a common language now for retrieval practice. I mean, I see your illustrations pop up everywhere. I mean, in fact, I was talking to Tom Sherrington a couple of weeks ago in terms of his Rosenshine book as well, which you've contributed to, haven't you, in terms of the, the visuals yeah, for that yeah. as well. And, and you see there's almost a common language now that, you know, it's avoiding these lethal mutations because people can clearly see through the visuals backed up with the text what these particular principles are and, crucially, how they can apply them in the classrooms. Yes, exactly. My aim really, in some way, and you used the term earlier on when we were speaking before the podcast started, is like a bit of a shop window. So shop windows, first of all, they have to be attractive. So all the design principles are about too much, not too much clutter. You can see what the heading is, nice, attractive design with some graphics. And it's really attractive um, in the same way that magazines are. So it brings you in and shop windows, and then you and then what you see is of intrinsic value. You can use it in a classroom. At the same time, it will pique your interest. So some of people may want to read a bit more. Mm. So they saw my poster that I worked top at Rosenshine, and Tom's subsequently written a little booklet. Those people might be, be, there may be many people who would never read Tom's booklet but having read the poster and having seen the similar graphics for the cover so they made the link I think there'll be many thousands more who have read the booklet without a doubt and I know that you did something with Stephen Tierney on curriculum design as well Mm, and, yeah, and I know yeah. that he, I'm sure he won't mind me saying he probably doesn't listen to the podcast he hears enough of me talking as it is without me listening to the <laughs> podcast as well but um, I think that was one of his most popular blogs because it was immediately accessible for the content alongside the visuals so actually dual coding in action there yes the other thing I find really interesting is that as I mentioned with Megan and, uh, and also with Stephen is the dual when two people or, or more share the intellectual challenge of being able to get the nub of an idea and depict it visually, the conversation becomes very direct and very productive. Mm. And that's what I particularly love, working with people with their ideas, finding out exactly what they mean, how they depict it, and then everything is a process of clarification. Mm. 
Absolutely. So just moving in, into the book in a little bit more detail, and like I said at the beginning, I haven't quite got my copy through yet, thanks to Amazon, but I have seen snippets of it through <laughs> other people have shared. So at the start, you've got sort of why you know cognitive science has become, why dual coding has become more more in the everyday parlance. You know what exactly is it that what, what exactly is it that you think that's, that's reignited the interest in it? Why do you think that's happened? Well, visual strategies used to, well, they've never not been there. Mm. You, know, you talk to a teacher who taught in the 1930s and will talk about the same things. I think for a while, and I was in, kind of involved, is that the visuals got purely progressive teaching, mindless colouring in, making posters, kids making posters and not learning what they're doing. So it had a really bad reputation, quite rightly, for those activities. However, with the re-emergence of cognitive science, or no, re, the, the new interest of cognitive science amongst teachers, they then started to read some serious reviews of dual coding. And actually, I mean, to be honest, the, the very term dual coding, I think, was a useful bit of, in essence, it ended up being rebranding. Uh, so we took it more seriously. Um, we discounted the, the silly things, you know, doing a mind map using 17 colours and draw pictures all the time. So we realised that behind your coding is the representation of ideas. It is the visual organisation of knowledge. Essentially, that's what we're talking about knowledge, and knowledge would have the knowledge curriculum. We know that different subjects have different knowledge structures, and that's a very abstract term until you can actually see the different structures. So many, we've mentioned physics, so many of the sciences will have processes. Well, those processes can be made visually, visually represented and depicted, and you'll have a certain structure, which will be an algorithm, a flowchart, a cycle, whereas other subjects may use a more hierarchical. And so... I think that, I don't know what I'm saying now, because <laughs> I can't see an, an image. I'm thinking that dual coding is a servant of the other strategies. That's the other thing I wanted to say. In some way, I hold it that dual coding isn't necessarily a standalone strategy. I know the learning scientists had it as one of the six, but in a sense, it's most powerful when it serves a purpose. So it serves a purpose, as in my talking with the learning scientists, because I wanted to depict a process in, in her research. It serves a purpose when we have a visual strategy in order that we can have another way to do retrieval practice. Dual coding serves a purpose when a graphic organiser sits between two students and one has to explain an idea to another and the, dual, the graphic organiser becomes a speaking and listening framework, a focus for attention. Dual coding becomes useful when, it's, when it becomes a writing plan that helps structure how you write. A graphic organiser is useful when it becomes a mechanism that supports and sustains metacognitive review. In that sense, I think it's enormously beneficial. I think this idea I'm now explaining about it being a servant to other strategies will gradually come out. 
Definitely. Just uh, no, no, it's it's absolutely brilliant. You know, there's long answers as you like. Um, I was going to go into the second half of the book, Oliver, if that's okay. Now, obviously, like I said, I haven't quite seen it, but I've seen people talking about this. So you've got some. Are there case studies with with teachers towards the back of the book? Is is that the the thing when you've got all these contributors that are putting their their ideas in? How does that work? There are thirty-five groups of people who've done a double page rather i've organized the book as a double page spread so it's a five landscape so as you open it up it's like a panoramic view you know like a sigma view and and i've done all the writing visual so it's a standalone piece you don't have to keep turning over and so with the teachers i've got teachers teacher developers that's a term i've used for teacher trainers etc and i've got um I've got psychologists, I've got the learning scientists, and I've also got fully-fledged professional information designers who would like to contribute to an education book, and I put them in um, because I think it's aspirational and teachers can, can learn from them how they, how they organise their work and, and display it, arrange it. And so I ask a team of questions about, really, what role do you see dual coding has in your practice? Mm-hmm. Give me an example, talk about it, and on the opposite page, show me it. And so we've got some wonderful examples. You know, the Jana Weinstein, um, you know, the learning scientist, showing one of the little doodles to help explain an idea. There's there's people with PowerPoint slides. I've got an A-level teacher doing philosophy, diagramming it out, RE teachers, abstract concepts. Absolutely, and, and you know, I've got the, I've got um, Andy Buck, Amy, how he does diagrams, the integral part of his presentations. It's enlightening. It's, it's a different sort of interview, and you get a real insight into thinking and where they think the difference comes by using your coding. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. I'm just, I can feel that the uh, that the signal between uh, Sonny Ludham St. Anne's and, and down there where you are is, is drifting a little bit. So apologies to All listeners right. if it's dropping out a little bit. So we're just going to wrap it up if that's okay, Oliver. And, and, and thank you again for your time. And I could literally speak to you all day, but I know you've got preparation to do for uh, for tomorrow. Could you just tell listeners a little bit in this section about where they can see you speaking next, what kind of activities you've got coming up in, in the next few weeks and months, and a little bit about you know where the book is available and what kind of things you're doing to promote that, that, that release. Right, first of all, I heard from John Cat that oh. Amazon America is receiving the books very shortly, on Thursday, I believe, so our American friends can get it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's available at Amazon. They had run out, but I think John Cat has shipped some more over, and also you can get it from John Cat directly. If you bump it to me, I'll probably give you a copy free anyway. And uh, you can come into me. I'm pretty much doing all the research ads. Right. I'm doing all the research ads. I'm doing Wellington uh, in a couple of weeks' time, the Festival of Learning at Wellington. Yes, I'm doing all the research ads. And in my presentations, I normally do those two activities that I did with you. Mm. I've decided I'm going to do a third activity, which I did yesterday at a school, which I used to do years ago, where I do one activity that mimics exactly a teacher teaching something using dual coding and the students doing something which includes copying, tracing, explanation and retrieval practice. Um, and the result is they will be able, they will, I've got a secret topic and I will teach it to you and you'll be able to create a graphic organiser and then we'll take the graphic organiser away and purely from memory you'll be able to 
redraw it as if it was a photocopy. Wow. So that's what I'm offer. It's really active, and you have to come with paper and pencil, but you can't come in the room. <laughs> Hello. Oh, all right. Okay, I'm back in. Oh, you're back in. You're back in. Right. Well, we're just wrapping up anyway. So that that sounds fantastic. And I'll get my pencil and paper ready. So we we be at Research Ed Rugby today. I will indeed. Oh, fantastic. Well, I will be sat at the back. Um, hopefully not facing the wall with my pen and paper ready. Um, <laughs> to to learn and also be at the Wellington Festival of Education. So I'm going to get two opportunities so by the end of that I might, I might be semi-competent Oliver just to you say <laughs> I will indeed just to say thank you so much for giving up your time today really appreciate it and, and links to all the, the places where the book's available and all the papers that we've talked about will be on the podcast intro so again thank you very much for your time today really appreciate it and, and look forward to seeing you soon hopefully pleasure it's great fun thanks thank you bye bye and Hello everyone, you are listening to my dad on the podcast called Nailers Natter. Follow him on Twitter at PNA1977. Wow, what an interview. I literally can't wait for my book to arrive to a letterbox after that discussion. So thank you again, Oliver, for giving up your time to speak to me on Nailers Natter. So links to the book and to all the papers are on the podcast intro, and that takes us nicely into the shameless plugs section. So on the 15th of June, I'll be at Research Ed Rugby, where I'll be interviewing Professor Michael Young for a special on-tour podcast, and I'll be asking him about powerful knowledge and its implications for the curriculum. On the 28th of June, I'll be in London talking about metacognition in a knowledge-rich curriculum for Keynote. And next week, I will be presenting for the East Lancashire Teaching School Alliance on the new EEF Behaviour Guidance Report. And links to sign up for that event are on the podcast intro as well. Coming up next week on the podcast, we have Ruth Walker, who'll be talking powerful knowledge, physics, cognitive science, and research ed rugby, where she will be the co-host of the OnTour podcast, interviewing Professor Michael Young. We're also going to have Jonathan Haslam talking about his role as the director of the Institute for Effective Education, and specifically about promising research projects. And I'll be talking to Mark McCourt on mastery, uh, not just in maths. So, if you've enjoyed the podcast, which many of you are, and thank you very much for being there, could you like and subscribe? And if we want to get interactive with any of the future guests, then there is a link on the podcast to be able to send in messages. So we'd like to see some of those in future weeks. Once again, thank you for listening to Nailers Natter, and see you next time. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers.